The word of the Lord is open this morning to Matthew's gospel, the third chapter, Matthew chapter 3. The third chapter of Matthew's Gospel, beginning with the first verse. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers! Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor, and he will gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade, forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's fitting this morning that this chapter would open to us as we are... Uh, anticipating a new Bible study series on Elijah, you will definitely see many parallels between the man spoken about here and that great prophet of the Old Testament. Elijah appears like a thunderbolt to the children of Israel, to the kingdom of Israel. He simply shows up in Ahab's palace 
and declares that there will be no rain until there's repentance in the land. Well, he didn't say that. He said at his word. But it was, it was because of what was going on in the land that the people needed to repent. We can see how, too, Jesus would say that his cousin, John the Baptist, was indeed Elias or Elijah. Come again. He was dressed the same. Elijah was a, a wild man, if you will. He wore simple, rough clothing. He spoke gruffly, not eloquently. And it was the same here with John, John the Baptist. I really wish Scripture would give us more about this man. I'd like to know how it was that those that were in Jerusalem and Judea come out, came out to see him. It says very clearly of John that he did no miracle. I can certainly understand people going to see Christ, especially if they had a need. Those that had sick loved ones or perhaps were themselves ill. When you hear news of, of, a, uh, of, a, of a cure, it spreads like wildfire. People tell others and say, you know, I know you've tried these doctors, but there's this, there's this man over there who's taking care of people that have the same condition you do. You need to go see him. But it says clearly John did no miracle. And yet, Christ himself said, there's never been a greater born of woman than John Baptist. Why would that be? He had a special position, it's true. He was the forerunner, the one that went ahead. You know, as times change and we get used to living in a digital age, we have a harder and harder time thinking back to what it must have been like before some of these conveniences, before instant communication, before cell phones. In the days before instant communication, when someone important was coming, it was, it, was, it was essential that people would behave themselves properly when that person came. And so a messenger was sent out in front to tell people who was coming. Now, again, you need to, you need to kind of unthink some of our modern way of doing things. We're so familiar with uh, visual media. We're, 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 we know what all of the celebrities and uh, the royals look like, what they sound like. We could pick them easily in a crowd. But back in the days before all of that, many people had never seen, that's certainly not up close, some of these important figures, whether it was a military general or a, even the high priest or a, 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 a dignity or a king. People wouldn't have even, even known what they looked like. So part of the reason that uh, they, they dressed the way they did is that their clothing was a symbol of who they were. You could pick the king out because he was dressed fancier than everyone else. He wore a crown of gold on his head that no other man could afford. 
It became obvious that person there is the king, and so he would send a standard bearer. Of course, people back then also were not particularly literate. Uh, it wasn't enough to go post a message a week ahead of time to, in the town square to let people know what was going on. You had to tell them. So these runners were sent to tell people who was coming and who they were and why it was important, and then the, the, the town or the people in that area would, would know to be on their best behavior, appear their best. And uh, this is the way it was. But now when we approach Scripture with these things in our minds, this forerunner, John the Baptist, he was a remarkable man. He looked different than most men. It describes his clothing. Isn't that interesting? We know very little about what Jesus wore other than he had a coat that had no seam. That's about it. His garments, they ripped up, but it doesn't even tell us what they were. I'm of the opinion that Jesus didn't look much different than any other man. He didn't do the things that every other man did. But he didn't... I don't think he looked all that different from the average man. I think the artists that have depicted him in the past probably got a little bit carried away. You may ask why I even say that. Well, when it came time, even though Jesus was so popular and so many people had seen him, when it came time for the, uh, the guards to arrest him, Judas had to give them a special tip, a clue, as to who it was that they were to arrest. If Jesus really was this six-foot-three, long-blonde-haired, stunningly handsome man, I don't think he would have been too hard to pick out. Absalom certainly wasn't hard to pick out of a crowd. But Jesus, Jesus didn't look like a king. The forerunner stood out, John the Baptist. He was a prophet cut from the old cloth. Um, a striking man. But when Jesus came, I think his appearance was nothing remarkable in and of itself. So there was a forerunner to announce this king, but this king was not going to be the kind of king that they were expecting. But I'd like to look for this morning's meditation on this particular passage of Scripture and what it was about John the Baptist that made him unique. His message was very simple. In fact, it was the same message that Jesus initially preached when he began his ministry. Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's coming. A kingdom meant a king. He was the forerunner, as I mentioned already, but this king was not going to look like the kings of this earth. His message, repent. Change the way you are thinking. Repent. Pensive, we have that modern word, which means thoughtful. From the same root, thought. Rethink. Rethink what you are doing. And this is exactly what Jesus came to teach. 
and to preach. He came to recalibrate the thinking of God's people. They thought that they had it all figured out. They thought they had it right. The Pharisees and Sadducees figured that their, their religious system not only was pretty good, but there was no room there for change. And Jesus had to take them back to the basics. Back to the, to the simplest things of God. So often, when he gave them examples, they gave him a, a particularly thorny religious question, some question that they were really scratching their heads over. And Jesus would answer, and his proof text that he gave them was something that any Jewish child knew. The story of Moses at the burning bush. The story of Adam and Eve in the garden, how God made them first, male and female, not to be separated when it came to the teaching of divorce. And John likewise points back to the simple things. We don't have a record here of, of, of his exact teaching, but he tells them, tells the soldiers, don't do violence to any man. He tells the tax collectors, don't take more than is appointed of you. He gives them these simple teachings. God had a heart for the, for, the, for the widows and the orphans and the underprivileged. He expected his people to, to act differently than the oppressive nations of the world where the rich got richer and the poor often ended up in slavery. John tells them to rethink everything that they are doing. It's interesting to note he was of the priestly line. His father, Zacharias, was in the temple ministering when an angel came and saw him. And yet we don't read about John the Baptist in the temple. Certainly a miracle child like him would have deserved some special post in the temple. But I think, I think that God is trying to show us something here. You don't dare... You don't dare mix human wisdom and human patterns with something that is the working of the Spirit of God. You need to be very careful with that. The Pharisees probably would have welcomed Christ with open arms if he had fit in a little bit more with their system. But he condemned it with the truth of God's word and they responded with anger. But that happened already back in the, with the preaching of John. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers. They were curious to hear what this, what this teacher, what this prophet had come to say. We read in another spot, they wanted, to know, they wanted to know where he was from, if he was really that prophet that the scripture testified about. And John said, no, I'm not. And then they asked him, what are you then that we can tell those who sent us that we can give them an answer? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In the wilderness, apart. Apart from the religious systems, 
apart from the attractions and glamour of the world. God's people have always been called apart. And this is something I think that we really need to get in our heads. We are not to be of this world. I mentioned uh, fairly recently, I think, it was maybe on Wednesday, that I just finished reading through Pilgrim's Progress one more time. I'd read it years ago, uh, but I I picked it up again and and over a month or two read it. It's not a long read, but I just spread it out. And I I was really impressed with the way Paul Bunyan records that account, the dangers that beset Christian and his friends, those that appeared to be friendly and tried to turn him out of the way, those that tried to delay him on his journey to the celestial city, those that outright attacked him. And it said specifically, he had no armor for his back. As scripture also records, a breastplate of righteousness doesn't mention anything about armor on the back. These these Pharisees and Sadducees came out of curiosity to see who this man was. And he calls them a generation of vipers. Now that doesn't mean just one generation. Generation, offspring. Offspring of a snake. In, In Jewish culture, that could only mean one thing. A child of the devil. A child of the devil. One that... If you think back to that first account in Genesis, one that tries to to compromise or, or twist what God has said. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not surely die. Isn't this the spirit of the times that we live in? Isn't this the attitude of nominal Christianity? Did God really say that? Are Christ's teachings about, say, divorce and remarriage or separation from the things of the world, are they really that strict? Surely God wouldn't condemn for a minor infraction. Repent. Repent. Change your way of thinking. Get your head right. Look what God's word says. The only thing we have to stand on here at this pulpit is God's truth. That's it. We cannot point to some kind of a history or lineage. History and lineage can be corrupted. Look what happened to the children of God. The ones specifically, specially chosen by him. So don't think that we can point to a heritage of of godly believers before us. It's good that we learn what they have to teach us. It's good that we realize where they followed the truth of God no matter what, what the cost was. That is an important lesson that we are also in danger of forgetting. But lineage is not enough. We can only stand on the truth. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
there is coming wrath. We've spent the last number of weeks on Wednesday evening learning about what God's word has to say about that. There is coming wrath. God is patient. It says many, many times in Scripture, He is slow to anger. I read it again just the other night. Slow to anger. But that wrath is coming. And just because it hasn't happened yet is not a reason to, th- reason to think that it will not come. There is a wrath to come. You know, we have the benefit now of history and I don't know exactly what happened to each one that, that John the Baptist or Christ spoke to and warned in this way. But we do know what happened to the nation. We do know what happened with the overthrow of Jerusalem. And many of the religious elite died at the last in their temple, thinking that God was going to come down out of heaven and save them in some miraculous way from the Romans. And they died a horrible death. They were not spared because they would not repent. Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. This weekend marks the unofficial beginning of gardening season. The long weekend in May is traditionally when Canadians, at least in Ontario here, put in their gardens. Every plant is planted with the intention of fruit. I'm talking about vegetables and fruit trees, of course, not flowers. Every, we put a couple of small plants in our backyard just yesterday. We plant each one of those plants with the anticipation that that plant will bring fruit. So it is with repentance. Repentance, true repentance, must always produce fruit. God expects it. God expects it. There is a teaching in nominal Christianity that would like to ignore this. That says that salvation is a, is a transactional experience. It's something you do once upon a time and then you go on your merry way. No, it's not like that. True repentance produces fruit not once but continually. And as that plant is cared for by that vine dresser, he prunes it back in certain spots that it would produce more fruit. James tells us very clearly that faith without works is dead. And this is uh, another way of understanding it that true repentance, someone who has actually changed their mind, who has realized that the way that they are thinking is wrong and needs to change, that will produce measurable results in their life. I was just thinking about this on the drive-in this morning. You know, at the, at the root of all of this, of repentance really, is our opinion about ourselves. It's very simple. Do you think of yourself as good? 
or bad? And then why? That's it. Are you at your bottom, at your very nature, the root of your being, are you good or are you bad? We'd all like to say good, but we know the truth is otherwise. We see what comes out when we're not careful. We see how quickly anger and, and uh, uh, mean words, poor actions, bad choices can come out of us. The modern theory is that man is essentially good. Man is essentially good and is getting better. But ask yourself, is that what you see? Is that what you see in the world around you? What needs to be guarded, promoted, encouraged? Good or evil? Sorry, I didn't say that right. We, we need to, especially with children, we see how this works. Good behavior is what needs to be continually, constantly reinforced. You need to be continually reminding them of, of how they speak to each other, how they act, uh, how they behave, how other people perceive their actions. I never, have to, uh, I never had to explain to any of my children how to behave badly. That comes naturally. And the repenting that God requires of us, this rethinking that God asks of us, is that we would change the way that we think about ourselves to align it with the way that he thinks of us and what he says about us. And for someone who is willing to do that, they will, they will experience that ring of truth that is at the center of what God says about us. The name Jordan Peterson has been brought up a few times from this pulpit in the last little while, and I don't mean to, to praise him, but he's interesting in that he has come to the, to the, the definite uh, uncontested realization that man at his root is evil, that he has in his heart a, a darkness, a chaos that is self-destructive and will destroy society around him. He said that was the, 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 uh, the, the truth that could not be argued about when he did his research and saw, studied uh, the, the ideologies of the 20th century and the horrors that they produced. He realized this. And he said in his, in his book that I read not that long ago, he said, when I realized this about people, I realized that there must also be something opposite to this. If there is evil and pain and suffering, then there must be goodness and light and even blessing, I would say. And we need that. We need to bring order out of this chaos. And so he began looking into the, uh, the, the, the biblical accounts and pulling from them these lessons that would, that would fundamentally help people deal with their wretchedness. Would de to deal with the chaos and the evil that is at the center of each one of our being. 
And he has seen how it helps people. He talks about, he said, his, 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 for him, the best thing in all the world is being able to be in an in a, in a airport in some foreign country and have someone come up to him and say, you're Dr. Peterson, aren't you? And he said, well, yes, I am. And he said, I've read you bo your book, and I have to tell you, it has changed my life. I have, uh, I, I'm working at my relationships with my, with, my, with my father, with my wife. It's, it's, it's helped us see the problems that we have. That's the beginning of repentance. But Peterson does not go far enough. There is more that needs to happen. Repentance will produce fruit. Dr. Peterson sees that. He sees how this recalibration of our thinking will produce good fruit. But it's not enough. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I. as the forerunner was of less importance than the one that he was announcing, so the one that would be coming after John the Baptist would be mightier, greater than him. Whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. Think about that for a moment. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The best that Dr. Peterson can advise is a set of rules that will produce some, some good fruit in your life. But there is something that he cannot offer because he is struggling with it himself. What then? What then? A good life, good fruit, yes. But what then? What comes after? Life is suffering and pain, as he freely admits. And it's less painful and is less suffering if you align yourself the right way. You can't avoid it, but you can deal with it better. But then what? The internal problem has not been dealt with. And I'm, I'm so thankful to hear that we're going to have an opportunity to listen to the testimony of a brother from our Richmond Hill Church who's going to explain how this man who is mightier than John the Baptist came to him. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. There's two things I see there. The Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, in another place it calls it the Spirit of the Son, another place it calls it the, the promise of my Father. He was going to come and finally take care of that chaos that is in the center of every fallen man and woman. It's the only way. The fire, those things that are going to be burned away, the unnecessary things, the things that are hurtful and harmful. You know, 
Peterson says a lot of really interesting things. He's a very smart man. And he said something in his, in his book that really made me stop and think. He said, care for yourself the way you would care for someone else that you love. We do a really bad job of even, of even doing what's good for us. But we will be, he mentioned the pharmaceutical industry. You know, when you receive a prescription from your doctor, that's as much as the doctor can do. You go to see him, he t gives you a diagnosis, he writes a prescription, he hands you the paper and says, here, go fill that prescription. Something like over 40% of prescriptions do not get filled. Okay? You know what the other interesting thing is? When a veterinary gives someone a prescription for their dog, they fulfill it almost 90% of the time or more. People care more about their pets than about themselves. Isn't that odd? There's things in us that just need to be taken care of, burned away. Christ's message was a, was a harsh one. He said, look, if your eye offends you or if your right hand offends you, cut it off. It's hurting you. You need to deal with it. It needs to be removed. Because it can mean the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Whose fan is in his hand and he will truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. A little bit of explanation there. The way that they would separate the wheat from the chaff in those days, they would, of course, cut the whole stalk, right? That's how it was harvested, put in bundles, bound together, taken to the threshing floor. And on the threshing floor, that, all those sheaves would be spread apart on this, on this stone surface. And usually it was a beast of burden, an ox, that would walk all over that wheat. And the pressure of that huge animal against that wheat on the hard surface would crack away the, the, the chaff, would, the, the soft stuff would just be, would just be uh, pulverized or broken away from the wheat, which was heavier and smaller. And then they would come with, with fans, and they would use a, a, a fan to drive off the chaff, which was light, just blew away in the wind. The, the threshing floors were often uh, elevated positions so that the breeze could help. You take a, a scoop of, of this mix of, of wheat and chaff, you throw it up in the air, the wind carries the chaff away, and the wheat falls again onto the, onto the surface. And then once you've gotten rid of as much of the chaff as you can, you gather together the wheat. That's the part you want. The chaff, who cares what happens to that? This is what Christ was going to do. He wasn't going to come just to preach a, 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 a message of repentance for a better life here. But repentance as preparation for the essential work of God, which was going to be to change men and women from the inside. From the inside. This requires a leap of faith. This requires more than what most people are willing to give. People will take Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life. That requires no faith. Good advice based on clinical practice and historical pattern. But that next step 
that next step, that, that ultimate solution to the chaos and the evil that is inside each one, uh, each, each heart. They won't go that far. What is it? At the very bottom, we all would like to believe that we're essentially good. Isn't that it? Even for the Christian? We would all like to believe we're okay. An old preacher once said, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps wanting to crawl off the altar. And I have to say that about myself too. The Christian never needs to sin. Ever. But here's the catch. The only time he will not sin is when he is totally crushed by God and God can work in him. That's where victory over sin lies. As long as you think there's still a little bit of something good in you, you're going to struggle with sin, brother and sister. You're going to struggle. If you can freely admit that there is nothing good in my flesh, that it must all be of God, that the solution must be His, that it's not enough for me to just change my thinking a little bit, but my, my thinking needs to be so completely changed that I realize that in my flesh dwells no good thing and that every good thing must come from God. Until you can get to that point, there will be no victory. It's funny, we, we learn that in, in repentance and, and before baptism. We learn that. We learn the secret to victory over sin. But then sometimes as a believer, we forget. We start thinking that maybe I'm okay now. Maybe I'm not really all that bad. I mean, hey, I was baptized. I did repent. I had victory over sin. We need to realize how much we need the Lord. We need to realize how important His indwelling Holy Spirit is. That kind of humility, we see it exemplified perfectly in our Lord Jesus Christ. To the point where He would even be willing to subject Himself to baptism. I still don't understand that. Don't ask me to explain it, other than to give the words that Christ himself gave was, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. So this was right and it was required by God, but my mind rebels against this. The pure Lamb of God that, that John the Baptist even said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He had to be baptized? Now, which one of you thinks baptism is unnecessary? I think if nothing else, maybe this is what Scripture is talking about when it says, uh, it, it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness, lest anyone would think that they had an excuse. <laughs> and really, what's at the bottom of that excuse for not being baptized? I'm good enough, right? I'm not all that bad. I don't need that. You don't? You have no idea how deceitful your heart is. Yea, hath God said? 
The longer I study God's word, the more I, I read from it, the more it convicts me, the more I realize this cannot be a, word of, a work of man. It's too perfect. It's too perfect. It cuts too keenly. This word is like a razor. It cuts my own heart. And it warns me about the things that I need to be warned about, which is why the pulpit should never be censored. If it's in the truth, if it's truth from the word of God, let the brother preach. You don't like it, the problem's with you. That's why I think it's so important that our ministers are not paid, that no one can say, you do this for advantage. Or uh, you're going to stay away from certain topics because someone may not like it and they're going to stop giving to the church. Let the church burn. Rather that than it would ever get to that spot where we would preach because of filthy lucre. I'd rather be the one to light the match on this building than to let it get to that. The men and women of God have often been called apart, even as John the Baptist did. He went into the wilderness because there was no place for him in the temple. But it's amazing, it says all Judea and Jerusalem went out to see him. It says, I, I mentioned it before, John did no miracle. John did no miracle. Except this. We read in the Old Testament about Elijah raising a dead boy to life. John Baptist did something greater. He raised a dead nation with a simple message, repent. Brother Mike, could I ask you to select a hymn and in the last hundred years or so, Christianity, especially in North America, has subtly ch changed the message of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. They've subtly changed it and in doing so have robbed it of power. Here's the gospel that has been preached for about the last hundred years on this continent. Jesus died so you can go to heaven. That's the good news, according to evangelical Christianity. But that's not the full gospel. That is not the full gospel. The full gospel is this. Jesus died and tasted of hell so you don't have to. And in doing so, has opened up the way to heaven for you. Christianity is not an insurance policy that gets added to your life. Something you sign on a line once and you're done with that. And then you can have your best life now. Dr. Peterson's right. Life is pain and suffering. 
and a lot of that pain and suffering is self-inflicted. That problem at the center of us needs to be dealt with. And there was one that came who was that spotless Lamb of God. Came to not only expose that, but to deal with it. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's nothing you will find anywhere else in any other religion in this world. Like it says in the Old Testament, he has smitten, but he will bind up. He's injured us, but he will heal. We need to deal with that fundamental fact that's essential to repentance, to realize who we really are. One final word, and I won't mention this guy's name again for a while. Dr. Peterson went through something interesting in the last little while. He wrote up those 12 rules for life, sold millions of copies, bestseller. But he had some sort of a condition that required some medication. That medication was a powerful painkiller. What he found out was that he became addicted to this painkiller. I don't know all the details, but for a year, he talks about his life being like a hell with this addiction. I think the reason that it was particularly painful with him is because he was the man who was intelligent enough to write down these 12 rules to keep the chaos at bay, and it didn't work for him. In spite of all that, he found himself in the grips of something that was, that was powerful, that was debilitating, that was dangerous, that was against his own best interest, and he couldn't help himself. That is what sin is like. When we finally can expose that root, as Christ does, where he dies in our place, because we couldn't, by our dying, make it right. Now we have an opportunity to live with him. May the Lord add whatever was lacking. This concludes our service. Amen.